The, uh, the Chinese economy has, uh, well, it's been described as a ticking time bomb, if not, if not a basket case. Falling consumer prices, the property sector on the edge of collapsing, ageing workers and high youth unemployment, as well, of course, as the legacy of COVID, all playing a part. And uh, where the issue... Where and where the issues of the world's second largest economy, its ripple effect, of course, affect us all, particularly here in Australia. Simon Cox is a writer for The Economist. Simon's based in Hong Kong and joins us now. We were hearing less than a year ago, Simon, that uh, post-COVID China was back and raring to go. But what is the reality well, thanks, Philip. Yes, that's right. I mean, we uh, wrote that it would be the biggest economic event of the year. And you could argue that that's true. It is the biggest economic event of the year, but only because it's been the biggest economic disappointment. Um, your listeners will remember that China had very strict draconian social restrictions during uh, the pandemic era. It pursued a policy of zero COVID. And it didn't abandon those policies until right at the end of last year. And so there was this period of great pent-up demand, uh, the view that people would go out and spend because they hadn't been able to over the past uh, two or three years, that people would travel to the rest of the world because obviously strict quarantine requirements had kept people at home, and that in general, uh, the stock market business confidence would uh, really take off in a significant way. Um, and that hasn't materialized. Uh, China did have a good couple of months, uh, but then consumer confidence didn't really recover. And the property slump, which had begun you know, in 2021, got worse, not better. And that, as you mentioned, will have ripple effects uh, on all of us around the world. So major developers are failing to make their, their bond payments and uh, they carry such a large part of the, uh, the country's GDP. How big is it? Well, China's property sector is a little bit difficult to measure, but if you include all of the suppliers and perhaps you know, throw in things like furniture purchases, you can get figures of about 20% of GDP, perhaps even a quarter of GDP. So it's a very significant part of China's economy. And it's been uh, subject to speculative pressures for a long while. Uh, people see housing not only as a place to live in, but as an investment. And the government have been quite keen to quash that speculative momentum. And also it was quite worried that China's property developers were very highly indebted and had relied on very fast sales of property to keep their balance sheets uh, in the black. So it was trying to uh, regulate that more tightly, but in a way it succeeded too well. It managed to force one of the biggest property developers, Evergrande, into default. That was followed by defaults from other developers and uh, home buyers got spooked and stopped buying properties, which just made the financial situation of the developers even worse. And being provincial, of course, this has uh, reduced the demand for steel and Australian iron. Well, that's one of the more interesting parts of the story, actually, because you would have thought, given how awful the property sector is in China right now, that iron ore prices would have slumped. 
but you know, as your listeners will know, they re- they really haven't. They're still quite uh, significantly higher than they were at the end of last year. And in general, the same is true of oil prices. Again, they haven't been as affected by China's slowdown as one might have suspected. There have been other things going on in the world, of course, that have kept uh, commodity prices high, in particular geopolitics. But also parts of China's economy uh, seem to be holding together okay. Even though the property sector is in decline, uh, infrastructure spending is still reasonably strong. And China seems to be buying a lot of crude oil, even if the sort of end-user demand isn't as strong as people expected. So I expect it's sort of building up its stockpiles a bit. Now, Xi Jinping has talked about uh, this as a transition to a new type of industrialization with uh, sectors like green technology taking the place of uh, property. But of course, Sir Simon, creating a new economic powerhouse doesn't happen overnight. That's right. So this is definitely a long-term aim uh, of Xi Jinping and the leadership uh, to make China a resilient economy, to preserve its manufacturing edge and indeed enhance it by uh, dominating some of the industries of the future, advanced manufacturing. And they're also hugely concerned about their continuing dependency on the rest of the world for key technological inputs, in particular cutting-edge semiconductor chips. So they have all these goals to try and harden the economy, make it more resilient And that seems to be uh, paralyzing them or slowing them down when it comes to responding to the immediate pressures on the economy, which are this consumer caution and this slowdown in property buying. So we were all expecting a more forceful government response than we've seen. On previous programs, we've talked about uh, Japanese or Japanification, you know, debt, uh, deflation and demographic demographic decline. Is that part of what's happening in China? So I don't think they're there yet, but that's definitely a concern. And one of the reasons why I think the government should respond more forcefully with stimulus than they have. Uh, We did see consumer prices fall uh, earlier in the year, and there seem to be broader deflationary pressures, that is downward pressure on prices. And you know, that sounds great from the point of view of consumers, but it can be very unhealthy for an economy. It's a sign that spending's too weak. And it can make debt even harder to repay because obviously the prices firms are getting for their goods are diminished. That makes it harder for them to, to repay the debts they've taken on. So it can become a vicious circle, as Japan discovered. Um, they're not there yet. Um, I'm, ta- I'm talking to Simon Cox. Simon's in Hong Kong. He's uh, the China economics editor at The Economist. What's the current status of the international trade relations with Australia? There've, there's been a, a distinct thawing, has there not? Yes, uh, absolutely. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. But probably one reason is that China did want to reconnect with the world economy once it lifted its zero COVID restrictions. And more recently, it's obviously been concerned about the slowdown in its exports. So this is no time for picking fights uh, with your, your trade partners. So I think that may be one way in which the slowdown has actually benefited the global economy because it's made uh, the leadership a little bit more keen to settle some of those annoying trade disputes. So local listeners have to ask this question. What could a faltering Chinese economy mean for Australia? How much investment is tied up in China? So obviously there's been this sort of geopolitical distancing between the two economies and flows of investment, in particular foreign direct investment into China, 
have really um, diminished uh, in recent years. But uh, it's still clearly your biggest customer for all sorts of key commodities. But And so, you know, you're very exposed if the slowdown gets uh, much worse. But as I mentioned earlier, one of the sort of puzzles of the slowdown is it doesn't seem to have affected commodity prices as much as we might have thought. So at the moment, Australia seems to be weathering it quite well. Indeed, you had uh, you know, a very strong trade service recently. When you look out your window, Simon, do you see the impact of the slowdown in Hong Kong? So Hong Kong obviously is, is part of China, but the economies are a bit separate. And uh, we didn't have visitors from the mainland for the best part of three years. And, you know, and I remember earlier in the year, I was rushing to take my daughter to Disneyland because I thought, now China's opening up. There'll be lots and lots of tourists from the mainland. It'll be much too crowded. I better go now. And we have seen a pickup uh, in, in visitors, but it's still fairly modest. I think uh, the latest figures for the, the Golden Week holiday uh, we've just had uh, suggest that uh, I think the cross-border trips from China are about 85% of, of the levels they were in 2019. And for lots of destinations, including Australia, they're still quite a bit lower than they were uh, in 2019. There's been quite a lot of tourism within China not so much tourists from China visiting places like Thailand or, or uh, Japan or Korea. What has uh, or what policies has uh, President Xi implemented to try and fix his economy? Well, too little, to be honest. Um, there have been some cuts in interest rates, but they're very small cuts. Uh, there have been lots of small bore piecemeal measures to try and lift entrepreneurial confidence. What we haven't seen is a sort of big spending package. Uh, I think that may be coming, or at least a medium-sized spending package. Uh, they can still spend more on infrastructure if they need to, and that has beneficial ripple effects uh, throughout the economy. But Xi Jinping seems you know, quite reluctant to just give people money in the way that you know a lot of Western economies did during the pandemic. He doesn't really want to send uh, you know what the Americans call stimmy checks uh, to households. He has a sort of ascetic style to him and uh, seems to frown on that sort of direct consumer help. Simon, Xi's uh, relationship with the world at wide is, isn't helping the economy, is it? No, it isn't. Certainly not foreign investment. Indeed, uh, I think you know, the confidence of foreign entrepreneurs in China has really been shaken both by the erratic policymaking during COVID and the sort of security crackdowns we've seen since. There have been raids on uh, due diligence firms, consultancies in China that help firms uh, figure out who their counterparties are in China. Uh, and that's um, made people nervous. Uh, some executives have not been allowed to leave. Um, you know, these are still sort of somewhat isolated cases, but they definitely uh, damage people's uh, uh, confidence uh, in China and, and make people think twice uh, before making some investments there. You've reminded us that Quad, AUKUS, US, Japan, Korea, trilateral cooperation and the US campaign to restrict China's access to advanced technologies are all reactions to perceived aggressive behaviour by China. Yes. So there's definitely been a sort of toughening on both sides. Uh, it's a long-standing belief in China that America would always try and contain them, that it wouldn't uh, put up with a peer competitor, another uh, superpower. And uh, America, more recently, you know, under the Biden administration in particular, um, has 
taking you know, quite uh, strong measures to try and prevent China getting a technological lead in these particular industries that America believes will be hugely important for the military of the future. So in particular, things like artificial intelligence, quantum computing. So there are restrictions on the semiconductor chips you need uh, to make progress in those areas. And that sort of confirmed the Chinese belief that America is out to stop their rise. Um, and obviously, people are now having to choose uh, you know, which side they want to be on. And that's very uncomfortable for a lot of economies in Asia. How does uh, China's hardline stance on uh, Taiwan and the South China Sea influence uh, countries wanting to do business with them? Well, it doesn't help. Um, you know, China has always had you know, a very sort of particular, deeply felt um, belief uh, that Taiwan must become, you know, once again, part of China in due course. Um, it's explicitly refused to rule out uh, violence, rule out uh, an invasion. Um, and, you know, we've seen some militarization of small uh, islands, uh, little atolls um, in, uh, in, in, in Chinese seas, um, all of which has, um, you know, added to this sense that China is no longer so concerned uh, about its economy and about its economic development that it's afraid to scare foreign investors. It clearly doesn't see that as a constraint on its policy anymore. I don't want to sound apocalyptic, but uh, could worsening economic uh, outcomes lead to more erratic leadership, even in regard to Taiwan? So I'm not a big believer in that thesis, to be honest. People do sometimes worry that, that China will try and lash out. Um, I don't see it, both because I don't think the economy is quite that bad yet, um, and also, it doesn't seem to be adding up to a great deal of internal political pressure. Uh, people lack confidence. Um, they're sort of apathetic, especially the you know, ambitious graduates who are not getting the jobs they expected to get. But it doesn't seem to be leading to anything like uh, political opposition or anything amounting to social revolt. So the internal pressures don't seem to be strong enough to warrant any kind of reckless foreign policy. And of course, a reckless foreign policy would just make the economic problems far, far worse. Coming back to something you've mentioned earlier, once a border borders reopened and we heard about the the return of tourists, with uh, many saying they wouldn't go there out of fear of arrest, especially uh, on bogus charges of espionage. Has that uh, brought on, well, have they brought a lot of this on themselves? I think you know, China is obviously a, a vast country and has you know, all sorts of internal imperatives that sometimes mean it loses sight of what uh, foreigners need. Um, you know, there are these uh, you know, particular incidents that obviously have been um, very uh, highly publicised about people being detained. There are also more practical and mundane things, like it's quite difficult to pay in China for things unless you have the right apps. And until quite recently, it was difficult to get the right apps uh, if you didn't have a local bank account within China. They're, they're fixing that. They're beginning to. But for two or three years, they didn't have to worry about any of that because they had so few visitors. Now they're trying to reopen and reconnect with the rest of the world. They're having to overcome these, these teething 
uh, troubles. But it's, it's definitely true that inbound tourism, you know, people visiting China, um, has been uh, depressed. Um, that's perhaps not surprising. I think what people are more surprised about is that the outbound tourism, the Chinese people wanting to visit the rest of the world, has not recovered faster than it, than it has. One of the things we witnessed and uh, Australia suffered was the eviction of so many Western journalists. Are you finding your task harder in Hong Kong? Uh, it's not been too bad for me personally. Uh, you know, Hong Kong's still a great city despite the, the political um, persecution that goes on here. Um, and I write about the economy, which is you know, less sensitive than some other areas. But sources are less willing to talk to you, it has to be said. Um, it, it's harder to you know, get people to open up. And it's been harder for me uh, to visit mainland China on a journalism visa. So those, those restrictions um, do make my, my job more difficult, it's true. We've been uh, discussing China's economic troubles and uh, with uh, Simon Cox. Simon is uh, China's economic editor at The Economist and, yes, he's based in Hong Kong. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.